and in what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word to believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Two great points here. Our lesson is entitled, Growing the Church. And on parallel with that is building your family. Growing the church, building your family. In a dark world, darkness has settled over America today. And there are two areas of your life over which you have a lot of influence beyond your own personal life. One is the family, the other is the church. That's where your focus ought to be. If you're spending an inordinate amount of time chasing podcasts instead of tending to your parenting, that's not good. Concentrate on what you can control and influence. Building a godly family, <clears throat> grow, helping to grow a church in a day of great evil. These verses that we just read put Jesus Christ as the preeminent person in the life of both the family and the church. <clears throat> And he is the head of both the family and the church. Praise be to his name. Our second reading will come from Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll be reading from verse 16 to the end of the chapter. Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 16 to the end of the chapter. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. And through him both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building filled together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. When Christ walked the earth, Judah and Israel were two very divided bodies. The church brings both Judah, the Judean population, indig uh, indigen indigenous people were in Judea at that time were Judeans. And the Gentiles were the Israelites in dispersion who were Greek speaking. Both were brought together in one body in the church built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ being the head of that institution, the head of the corner, the chief cornerstone. Let's go to Ephesians 3. We'll begin with verse 14 and read to the end of the chapter. Notice that all these verses are bringing us back to the reality of <clears throat> the church. The church, the church. So we'll begin now in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. Gentlemen, you may begin. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with the might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, 
that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be fulfilled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Notice that the whole family in heaven and on earth together form the church. That's the church triumphant of those who have gone before us. And they are one with us here. One body under Christ the redeemed of all the ages. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. And this time we'll begin with verse number 4. And we'll end with <clears throat> verse number 12. Ephesians 4, verse 4 through 12. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity and captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is his to be also descended first into the lower parts of the earth, he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And now may I remind the congregation of... The fact that the fifth and sixth verses are reminding us that the Bible had in mind some people with a southern dialect. One God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. also like to remind the congregation that God gave gifts. These are not offices here, as I understand it. They are gifts that God distributes across the, the, uh, the panorama of time to lead the church. Apostles, that's not, that's not an office. It's a gift. There's a difference. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, Pastors and teachers, Hold, look at your hand. You got one finger that's universally applicable. That's the thumb, the apostle. You have the prophet finger. And you have the evangelist finger, the finger that reaches out. And then you have the pastor and the teachers. All very important to grow the church. We're trying to grow the church always. And then if we will turn to Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21. <clears throat> 5, 21. And we'll stop at the end of verse 30. 21 through 30, chapter 5. We're ready. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. 
so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nor and cherisheth it, even as the Lord in church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Thank you. Now listen. Beloved, in these beautiful verses, so well known and so very well used through the ages, God is bringing the family and the church together. And I think it's remarkable how the Holy Spirit inspired St. Paul to take you from the family to the church, back to the family, and unite all these verses together showing us that there's a parallel between building a family and raising up and growing a church. So thank you now for a last series of verses. Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> this time we're going to go to uh, verse 10. Ephesians 6, 10. And we're going to read 2 verse 13. 10 through 13. Thank you, boys. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against the flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Excellent job. Thank you, gentlemen. Now, if you may return back to the congregation. All of the verses we've read today from Ephesians remind us that the Bible is separated by the law, the prophets, the poetic section, the history, the Gospels, the Epistle, and the book of Revelation. What is amazing about the Epistles is that they're all about the church. The church is founded upon the apostles and the prophets. And every single major teaching in the New Testament about the church is from one of the apostles or more. So I emphasize that, and all of the apostles drew the prophets into their writings. The Bible, therefore, is a wonderful book, and it is the foundation not only for your life, but for the church. Now, <clears throat> beloved, there's a, there's a lot of parallel between the church and the family. Both are under the headship of Christ. Both require members to grow it. A family needs children. The church needs families. So there's a mutual, reciprocal relationship between the family and the church. The church cannot grow without good families. And the families will be without any guidance without a church. So both require, both, both family and church require a lot of communion with God. Both the family and the church are held together by a covenant, a series of covenantal relationships. So important. The family, the church is grounded on covenantal theology. Oh, I pray you'll remember that. Both the family and the church have as their supreme authority, sola scriptura, the Bible only. The Bible alone. Now to that Bible, we will, of course, extend that to include the Apocrypha. It's part of the Bible, not necessarily as important as the rest of the Bible, but it has a place. It has its own place in the canon of God's Word. Both the home and the church 
reflect the witness of Jesus Christ in a world of great darkness. There is nothing, beloved, that will be like the family to be a witness in a dark time of history. If you can, if you can have a godly family, you will be a city set on a hill and you will bring glory to Jesus Christ because others will take notice of that family and they will say, I think we need to do whatever they're doing. So be a witness in a dark world with your family. And then I would like to also express the same for the church. The church cannot be a light, a city sitting on a hill, unless that church is in communion with its head, Jesus Christ. Unless the church is built on sola scriptura. Unless the, the church is teaching the whole counsel of God. There's something wrong with the church. And finally, but certainly not the last thing that could be said, your family and the church will give you the kind of meaning and purpose for existence that everyone desperately needs. You need a cause to live for. You need something with a passion that drives you and moves you every day. Your family and your church gives meaning to every day of your life. Think about that and the importance of that. Now, beloved, as we think about the church today, I'd like to ask some questions of you. And before we do that, I'd like to say a, a prayer that God will guide us in our reflections here. God, our Father, thank you this morning that you will give this congregation <clears throat> in a very dark time of history wisdom and understanding and knowledge to build great Christian families and to grow a church in a time of great evil. Father in heaven, we humbly acknowledge that this is not possible without you. And everything that we do is contingent upon your blessing. We humbly ask you now to guide this lesson in Christ's name and for his sake, amen. As we think about the church, I'd like to mention something this morning that I think I might be remiss, not necessarily for you people, but I would be remiss to my Heavenly Father if I failed to thank Him for the wonderful events that have happened this week uh, in my own personal family. I've had the birth of a, a beautiful, beautiful granddaughter she is grandchild number 36, and I've had a beautiful great-grandson, and he is great-grandson number 28, together with the granddaughters. And altogether now, I have 70 members of my blood family, and that is the exact number that Jacob took with him when he went down to Egypt. Now, mine are not all together like Jacob's, and I wish they were. But uh, I'd like to say this now regarding the church. Regarding the church. How much does the church mean to you? We spent a little time this morning thinking about the Christian Heritage Academy. What does our Christian school mean to everyone here? So what does the church mean to you? Suppose that the church of Israel, for whatever reason, just vanished and disappeared. Then what would you do? How important is the church to all of us? What do we think of the church? What are we doing to help grow the church?
Do we invite anyone to come to the church? Remembering that we have a policy here, attendance by invitation only. So if no one ever gets an invitation, then we have a very slow means of growth because our baby population has to outgrow the dying population. So it's very important that we grow the church. The church must grow. It grows through the birth of children, and that's critical. But it also grows through others being added to the church daily, such as should be saved, Acts 2.47. So a question here that I'd like to run by you. If you were handed out a, a blank sheet of paper today, and you were asked to write down the mission, the mission that you believe the church should reach out to accomplish. What do you believe the mission, primary mission, of this church is? Now, that's not easy to answer because the church is responsible to God for a lot of things. The least of which is not of course, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. But there's many, many other priorities for the church. So I'd like to run across some of the reasons that I believe that the church is important in every life here. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask you today, people, to be a jury. So you're a jury... And I'm going to be a very poor lawyer representing God's church. I'm an advocate for the church. I believe in the church. I am very happy to be one who knows that without a church, I would be lost. And I'm very happy to acknowledge that. So I'd like to present to you argument number one. The family and the church are the two oldest institutions in the world. Adam and Eve were the first family. They were the first church. And based on Matthew 18, 20, they were a church. Many of the earliest family, many of the earliest churches in New Testament Christianity were founded by one family in their home. So there's a, an inner connection between the family and the church. It's an indissoluble bond that joins a family with a church. You cannot separate a family from the church, of which Christ is both the head of the family and of the church. So I want to point that as number one in our advocacy for the church. That the two of those are the two oldest institutions in the world. And on those two institutions and the community that surrounds them and the nation that grows out of them, the Western Christian cultural Civilization has thrived and grown to be the greatest culture in the history of the world. And without those two institutions, we dissolve and perish from history. Number two, Christ is the head of both the church and he is the savior of the body, but he is also the head of every family, as I shall point out here in a moment. We've read into the record some beautiful verses from Paul's prison epistle to the Ephesus congregation, the book of Ephesians. But the Bible is emphatic that Christ is the head of the church, 
but he's also the head of every man who is the priest of his family. No man is autonomous from Jesus Christ and his headship. Every man is under authority. Now men often talk about the the need of the wife to be under the head of the man. And we need to give the same emphasis to the idea that the husband, the father, the priest of every family is under the headship of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. There it is. Head of every man is Christ. Head of the woman is the man. And God is the head. Uh, and the head of Christ is God. That's 1 Corinthians 11.3. Now how does a man come under headship? This is a great question because how does a man who's going to raise up a family, build a family, how does he come under headship? Well, he has to be united to Christ. And he can only be united to Christ if he's a member of the body of Christ. A man is not autonomous from the body over which Christ is the head. That's pretty plain. But there's a world of men who live their lives as autonomous family heads who, ver who give very little thought to the idea that they're connected to a body over which Christ is the head. And if they're a Christian, they're part of that body called the church. Now, that's the way the Bible seems to point it out. So, with that being said, may I enter to the record number three. How do, we become a how do we become a member of the church? If Christ is the head of the church, he's the head of every man, and since Christ is the head of the body, how does a man become the head of a family unless he's under the headship of Christ. And that headship comes from his belonging to the church. So let me read into the record Galatians 3.27. This is how you become part of the body of Christ. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There it is. Galatians 3.27, Mark 16.16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Now I know a world of people that believe in baptism, but they don't do a real good job of connecting baptism with the with how it joins them to the body of Christ and under the headship of Christ. Now, we become part of the body of Christ by baptism, beloved. Next question is, how do we become connected to one another? Now, this is important. How do you become connected with the person over here, the person over there, how do you become connected to this whole body? Let me give you one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. I'll turn to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Judeans, or Gentiles, Israel of the dispersion, speaking the Greek language in the New Testament era. So that's how we're connected together. You may not have thought about it, but the Holy Spirit is what joins you in union with everyone else 
that's in the church. Now, beloved, here's the way I perceive that. I know that the church is a family. It is a family, a living organism, and every member of that church is a member of a family of which we are all part. Your family, the family over which you as a priest reign and rule under Christ, is important to you above all else. But right behind that personal family is your church family. Now they're ahead of extended family who are unbelievers. Your allegiance is to your family under the headship of Christ, to the church of which you are a member. That's where your primary loyalty lies. Now, once in a while, you're going to be called upon to defend your church to the unbelievers in your family. To the unbelievers in your family. If you fail to defend your church, it may be difficult because they may have some arguments that sound pretty good. But you've got to be loyal to your church. You cannot give ground to the unbelievers no matter how much you may love them. You're not going to surrender your love for them, but you're not going to surrender your loyalty to the church to placate and make the unbelievers feel good. So that's very important to remember. So advocate number, advocacy number four. We are all members of one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 20. But now are they many members, yet but one body. Now that, that's hard for us to put together unless we understand that the church of which Christ is the head, that family that become joined together in baptism to Christ, joined to Christ, in baptism and joined together through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that becomes an organ, organism over which the world has no power if you're close to Christ. The, the church will have natural spiritual immunity. It, will, it doesn't mean that church and the family will not be tested. They will be tested severely. But if they remain faithful, they will be victors and triumph, triumph over all adversaries. Advocacy number five. The church has something that is a wonderful part of who it is, of what it is. There are seven rites, R-I-T-E-S, or sacraments in the church. So the church is an, is a, is an institution. You can't, you can't go make an appointment with your doctor to be baptized. Well, I guess you could. But it's not likely that he would want that job. The church can do things for you that no other institution can do. Now I know I would be challenged about that because some people believe that they are not only the head of their house, but they are the officiating person for all rights that are, as I understand it, pretty much bequeathed to the church. So baptism, preceded by penance, are two of the rites. We'll call it repentance or penance. It's coming to repentance and faith by grace in Jesus Christ. 
That's when we have the contrite heart, repent of our sins, confess our sins, and then we are baptized. Now those are two of the seven rites, and they're called the rites of the dead. Because you're spiritually dead before you're baptized and believe. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead, D-E-A-D, you hath he quickened who were dead. So the church then is the author of which Christ has given us, or rather I should say the church is responsible for utilizing the gifts that God has given us, the rite of baptism, the rite of repentance. Following that comes the sacrament or the rite. Again, it's R-I-T-E. It's not a R-I-G-H-D. Communion is a sacred, holy part of being a member of the church. It may be the highest and the most elevated point at which you connect to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Because when you take His body, our bread from heaven, when you take the fruit of the vine, the cup of our salvation, and you take that into your body, there is nothing that is the equivalent of that. To draw you into union with Christ. You're becoming part of who He is. Correction now. Don't mix that with merging the uncreated with the created. We will always be the uncreated. We will never become God. God will always be God, and we will always be His creation. So there is something very special about communion. And then there is confirmation. Now there's a world of people that do not necessarily subscribe to confirmation. And I'm not judging them, but I'm telling you, of something that I believe is really valid. When a child enters into a covenantal relationship with his God at birth by virtue of his parents and the headship and their covenantal relationship is over that child at his christening, as some people would call it, baptism, as the Bible calls it. That's very important, because confirmation, when that child comes of age, he's a covenant child, already under a covenant, but there comes a time in his life when he's going, or she's going, to take on the vows that were taken in their name at baptism. Now when confirmation is adequately, adequately and all of the, the, the background given to young people, they're advised not to be confirmed if they have not come to a living faith in Jesus Christ. We purposely work to discourage young people from being confirmed if they do not have a testimony of faith in Christ. There's a process of, of instruction that goes with confirmation. And it is part of what the Bible calls laying on of hands for the express purpose of receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit has gifts that are bequeathed 
to God's children. And they come through laying on of hands. And you may want to refer, for example, to Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 19. For confirmation, all of the points that I'm making in the, in the argumentation for defending the church have an innumerable wealth of Bible behind each one. So I know that we're just moving very rapidly. Then another <clears throat> lesser rite, lesser sacrament, is ordination by covenant into the ministry. Not less important, but only because it is singularly moving us in the direction of how the church is going to be ordered in the direction of the church in terms of its leadership. Marriage is one of the rights. Now, people can get married. They can stand out here under the tree and say, I love you. Be my dear wife. And she can say whatever she wants to say. And you can declare yourself married. But I ask you, are you? Marriage is a covenant between two people who are joined before an altar in the presence of witnesses that will always know that that marriage had a good beginning. Whatever else may happen in that marriage, they, they will not be able to testify that it did not have a biblical beginning. So the church is the place for marriage. The church finally, right, number seven, is the place for the holy unction, the healing of the sick. We bring sick people that are really sick. They are anointed with oil, James chapter five, and they are prayed for. It's a wonderful place. The church is therefore a place of healing. So there are two rites for the dead, spiritually dead, repentance and baptism. And the other five rites are for the living, praise God. And then, moving along, number six, advocacy number six. The church is the highest and most developed body on this earth for exercising your God-given spiritual gift. The church has three areas of gifts. They are motivational, they are manifestation gifts, and they are ministry gifts. Since it would take quite a long time to talk about each one of those, I will just simply mention in passing the motivational gifts. The motivation, motivational gifts are found in Romans chapter 12. There is further information in Romans, uh, in Romans, in other places. But in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and 1 Peter 4, we have the primary body of biblical information on the manifestation, or rather, correction, the motivational gifts. So, the motivational gifts, everyone has one primary gift. There's no one in this congregation that does not have one primary gift, and you may have other gifts as well. But you have a primary motivational gift. It's innate within you. God gives you that gift of motivation, spiritual blessing. So everybody has a gift. None are greater, none are lesser than the other. No one has the ability to say, my gift is superior to that one or this one. Less important because they're all of equal value to the glory of God. And they are the perceivers, the eyes of the church. 
the servers, the hands of the church. They are the teachers, the brains of the church. They are the exhorters, the mouth of the church, the cheerleaders. They are the givers, the pockets of the church. They are the organizers, the administrators, the shoulders of the church. They are critically important, as every other gift is. And then there is the mercy gift, the heart of the church. People full of compassion, love, empathy, mercy. If you're a husband, hopefully you married a wife that has mercy. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter number 4, verses 10 and 11. I encourage you to turn there real quickly. We're moving fast now. 1 Peter 4, 10. As every man hath received the gift. Now, beloved, if I'm wrong, I stand corrected. I stand corrected. But I think this has reference to both men and women. Men and women. As every one, every man hath received the gift, even so the same minister one to another. Because every one of these gifts, motivational gifts, is also a ministry gifts. You minister to other people through these gifts. You minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Some of these gifts are speaking gifts. You cannot be a teacher without being a speaker. Cannot be an exhorter without being a speaker. Cannot be a, a perceiver because you've got to tell them what, what sin they see. So you got, these are all speaking gifts. A, an administrator needs to tell people how to get themselves organized and get on with, get this show on the road. Somebody had to be in charge last Sunday when they had that house raising. There was somebody that was taking charge. You, you got to have order or you'll have chaos. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. But if any man minister, that means non-speaking, I think. Let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Advocacy number seven. One of the primary reasons for the church, unless I forget it, it would be time well spent to explore the ministry gifts, which are separate from the motivational, and the manifestation gifts, which are separate from both ministry and motivational gifts. Three different bodies of gifts. Another advocacy for the church, and this is a big one, church, the church is an institution that does a marvelous thing for everyone here. Do you know what that is? It holds us accountable. Think about it. I am not going to be able to be a member of this church. I'm not going to fit into this church. If my private life is notoriously immoral. My accountability to this body and your accountability to this body is a check on how our lifestyle is going to be lived out. So I cannot in good conscience... Do anything in my life that is going to bring a cloud over this congregation. God forbid. 
So in my position, I'm constantly trying to be cautious in everything that I do because I can cast a bad witness over everyone. And you too can do that. All you have to do is do something bad and the general public will say, oh yeah, they're from that, uh, they're from that church, you know, where, out there west of Shell City. So we've got to be cautious. We've got to be honest, pay our bills. We don't want to be notoriously known for not paying our bills. We don't want to be notoriously known for always having our name in the paper, God forbid, for domestic abuse circumstances. So we're not going to, we're not going to do anything that's going to bring disfavor to our Father in heaven and cast aspersions upon the church. Can you agree to that? I, I say that's accountability is the primary reason. It's, it's called the discipline of the church. A church has to have some discipline. If it doesn't, there's no accountability, then we're a very weak church. Number eight, the church has a responsibility to emphasize the four cornerstones and every family need to have your children be familiar with four primary cornerstones of the church. So I would suggest that we think about that for our children. The four cornerstones of which I speak, number one, the covenants of the Bible. We are a covenant family, a covenant people, serving a covenant God, and we are a covenantal body joined together with God and each other by covenantal contracts and relationships. So, number one is the covenants. Number two is the law. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Psalm 19, verse 7. So we have, number one, the covenants. Number two, the law. Number three, doctrine. Doctrine. We have a responsibility. This church, this pulpit, is responsible to teach the doctrines of the apostles and the prophets. That is what the church is founded upon. Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And everything that Jesus taught us is built from Moses, the prophets, and instructing the apostles who he called and ordained. So we have an obligation to teach apostolic defined doctrine. This is a tough mountain for many people to climb because many people build a camp, a cathedral on theology that's probably not going back much before 1800. How about going back to the first century? How about forgetting all new doctrine and going back to the beginning? If there's nothing new under the sun, somebody once said, if it's true, it isn't new. If it's new, it isn't true. We will be, this church can be blown around with every wind of doctrine if we do not have a root back to the beginning, the apostles and the prophets. And then finally, heritage. Who are we? 
Where did we come from? Are we aimlessly drifting without knowing who we are? God forbid! St. Paul said, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm an Israelite. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. We have every reason to teach our children heritage. Do not surrender who you are. It's important. Hold on to it. Cherish it. Four cornerstones. Covenants. Law. Doctrine. And heritage. And then I want to mention number nine. The church is the primary place where Christian fellowship occurs. You may not understand the, the nature of fellowship. I'm sure I, I don't really know the depth and breadth of how blessed we are for the fellowship of the saints. But it's important. It's vital. Because we are encouraged and we stimulate other people through fellowship. So it's wonderful to have the fellowship of fellow believers. And remind, uh, we need to be reminded, church, that it is the church that welcomes you at the birth. When you're born into the world, it is the church that receives you, welcomes you, and joins you into a covenant. It is the church where you will find membership in Christ. It is the church where you will be joined in marriage by a covenant. The church is where the very last rites, prayers will be made over you as you depart this world. And I believe it is the duty of the church to remind you that the end of life is not cremation. No, no, no. Let's not desecrate our bodies with cremation and burning them. If you cannot afford a burial, consult the church. We'll figure a way out, but no cremation. And then finally, and last, the church is a place to help you through tribulation, trial, and suffering. When you have a church family, and you may not understand this if you have never been through a time of great suffering, but if you've been through a dark time, of trial and tribulation, you may find that the church is the greatest resource that you have because a church family will have empathy for you that very few people outside of that church will have. So I encourage you to remember that without a church family, there is a great and urgent deficit that will appear in your life. You have to depend on a church body and you have to listen to what does the Spirit teach the church? What does the Spirit teach the church? Does God suddenly leave us in a crisis? Or does God speak to the body? Well, I believe that God speaks to us through the Spirit, through the Word, and through the testimonial of the power of the Holy Spirit. And with that, 
Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, our case ends. Shall we stand?